Hello, thank you. Thank you, and, and uh, thanks very much to, to Daisy. Uh, Tracy, it's, it's fabulous to be here. And this book is extraordinary. Uh, it just came out in paperback on Friday, uh, and you're going to be signing copies, aren't you, after the, after the event. So it's, it's an opportunity to pick up a copy uh, and, and get it signed by the author and, and have a chat with her, um, as I am about to do. Uh, just locate us geographically and within the timeline, Brooklyn's Park in the 1970s. Yeah, so it was a suburban village, but part of that green belt, just sort of 25 minutes north of London. Um, that's where I grew up in the 70s. Um, and the reason I came to write about it, again, was a little bit circuitous, because I was asked originally if I wanted to contribute to a, a book series um, of nature writing. I was asked if I had you know, some passion for writing about um, something in the natural world, you know, the Lake District or, you know, walking a coastal path. And I kind of went, uh, nah, I can't do that. I, I don't know anything about the natural world. And then I came away from it and I felt um, a little bit aggrieved. I thought, um, you know, I did grow up somewhere. There is a landscape I do know about and it's the suburban landscape. And it's a very neglected and looked down on landscape. And yet, that kind of in-between land that's not really the city and is not really the countryside is probably where most of us grow up and live, really. And I started to just think, well, maybe I can turn that kind of focused attention that nature writers turn to the natural world and, and turn that onto the place I grew up. So it started out the idea to write, you know, um, a really sort of forensic account of this location. But as books do, then it, it grew and it turned into a story about the people there as well. And it's all very much based on your diaries. Why were you keeping a diary? Well, it's a good question. When I started reading them back, um, they reminded me, you know, how bizarre it is really to keep a diary. You know, who's a diary for? Are you actually writing it in the hope that someone in the future is going to read it? Is it for your future self? Is it a way of expressing your feelings? Um, for me, you know, what was so striking was that a lot of the time it was quite dishonest. I left loads of things out. Um, or I gloss over things. There's lots of, you know, oh, well, I never fancied him anyway. Um, and I actually start the book with a few entries that I'm going to read you, which were, um, I got into the habit of writing about things that didn't happen. So my this is my first ever diary entry from December of 1975 when I was 13, and this is my first entry. Went to St. Albans with Debbie, got a belt, could not get a jumper or skirt. That's literally it. That's how I, that's how I begin my diary writing. The next day, I follow up in the same style, went to Welling with Liz, didn't get anything except a bag of Kentucky chips. And I carried on, there's loads. Went to Welling with mum and dad to get some boots, but couldn't get any. Liz and I went to Potter's Bar in the afternoon to try to get her ears pierced, but she couldn't. It just goes on like that, you know. And when I was reading them through and I came across these entries, I thought, this is my way in to the story, really, because what this introduces then is the idea of, okay, what's a diary for? What's any writing for? How do you decide what 
you're going to think worthy of writing down. And for some reason, I thought it was worthy to write down the things that didn't happen, um, which I quite liked as a sort of entry point, this sort of you know, negative existence, you know, the idea of actually looking at nothingness and drawing a circle around it. There are, as you said, some big bits, though, that you completely leave out, some really important things that happen to you, mm. and, and there's blank spaces at, at times. Mm. And I wonder why you were self-censoring. Partly because I knew my mum was reading it, um, and she really was. I mean, you know, it's, and there's, there is a, an actual blank page um, on one day. And, of course, I remember what happened on the day of the blank page, and when I was writing the book, there were lots of conversations with my publisher about the, the suggestion, you know, am I at some point going to reveal what's on the blank page? And it seemed to me quite important not to, because again, I'm, I'm talking a lot about that notion of, you know, whoever's writing the story is the one who's in control of the flow of information. So even as the diary keeper, by not writing it down, that gives you a sort of control. You know, you're the only one who knows what happened on that day. And I thought I'd hang on to that even with, within the book. I didn't want to suddenly say, you know, because actually it's not even that important. I, th I thought the more interesting story was the actual absence itself rather than the event. Uh, you make uh, comparisons at, at various stages in the book with Mike Lee and, and Abigail's party. Uh, and um, I thought that was really interesting. And, and then you go on to talk about uh, being common <laughs> and how um, class... Is, is about much more than being common. There are many other things involved. And I wondered what those things were. Well, I talk about the fact that, you know, class was a word I never heard used at all. It just wasn't used. Um, it, I think it would have been considered embarrassing to discuss anyone's class. But my parents essentially had been working-class North Londoners who'd left London after the war. They'd both been teenagers, lived through the Blitz. Um, then they'd left when they had a chance to move out to the suburbs and get a little house. And it was an aspirational move. For them, it represented, you know, moving up the social ladder. Your own house, a front garden, a driveway, a car. Um, you know, it's, it's a progression into the middle classes. But Brummer's part where we lived was tiny, absolutely tiny, but had a wrong and a right side of town. Um, there was a village green, and on one side of the village green were the small... And they were small, semi-detached houses, in one of which we lived. And then there were avenues leading up the other side of the green, which led up towards the golf club and the tennis club, which were the big detached houses. Um, and my mum never really got over her anguish at the fact that we lived on the wrong side of town, having gone to all this trouble um, to move out of London, to get into this suburban environment. We ended up living in... What other people, what the people up in the posh avenue would have said was the common bit. But because of that, my mum did what people do in that situation, which was she then turned into a hobby calling everybody else common or describing anything else as common. So, you know, if I brought the wrong friend home from school, you, it, it would be, oh, you can't play with her, she's common. Um, swearing was common. Too much makeup was common. I think sex was common, honestly. Um, most things that were any fun, frankly, were, were common. Um, so there was this sort of massive social anxiety, I think, really. You know, at the time, I couldn't understand it at all. I literally didn't know where, how the rules worked. 
But when I got older and I looked back, and I learned a lot more about my parents' life before they moved there, where they'd come from, I could begin to understand this, this sort of placelessness that they ended up with, which suburbia is very good at. You know, they left behind a community which, yes, was kind of torn apart. You know, they left behind bomb sites and, you know, shattered streets and moved somewhere which they thought would be an, a utopia. You know, suburbia was meant to be utopian. But what they found there was this bizarre sense of isolation. that They no longer were connected to where they came from, that they didn't really belong in what was the sort of the best bit of the village to live in. Um, so they ended up a bit placeless. So, as I say, class was never discussed because I think it was a source of, of real anxiety. And one thing that was deemed to be very common was showing off. Yeah, showing off was the absolute limit, um, especially for children. You know, I think just being, being loud, demonstrative, expressive, all those things, very, very bad. Um, so, you know, and I do think I, I did carry some of that with me. Um, my, my kind of rebellion against it came when I bought an electric guitar and formed a band and started making lots of noise in a sort of way. But when I came to play my music at home, I, I carried on really playing very quietly. I used to play my electric guitar without plugging it in so that you know, no one would hear me. And I think so that I couldn't be accused of, of showing off. And indeed, the first time you sang was, um, well, you tell us the story. Yeah, well, I sang from inside a wardrobe because I was rehearsing with the band I was in and they asked me one day if I could sing and I didn't really know, but I kind of wanted to try. But I thought, well, I can't do it if anyone's looking at me. Um, so I got in the wardrobe, as you do, the obvious thing to do, and um, from inside the wardrobe I sang Rebel Rebel. I mean, it's a little bit ironic, but it... But... <laughs> but I do also have a theory about that, which is, when you think about people like, because I write a bit about being inspired by artists, you know, being inspired by someone like David Bowie, which I really was. Um, and you might think, well, that's ridiculous. You know, obviously, if you're inspired by David Bowie and you sing Rebel Rebel, you should be at the front of the stage, you know, in an outrageous outfit. But the thing I say is that the point about those kind of artists is they don't inspire the brave. Those people are fine already. They inspire the timid. And I think I was essentially full of, you know, desire to do it, but I needed kicking to do it. I needed inspiring. I needed that, um, someone, uh, someone else to lead the way. So I think even from with, within my wardrobe, <laughs> you know, some little spark was lit. And that's what, that's what you need, I think, from those kind of artists. You've, you've looked at these diary stories before, and some of them have appeared elsewhere. And in fact, um, in, in, your, in your previous book, uh, Beds, Beds at Disco Queen, and I wonder what was different, how you dealt with the material in a different way this time? I think it's much more personal. Um, I used the diaries a little bit in Beds at Disco Queen, but really I was telling quite a schematic story. And I was trying to tell a cool story, honestly. I was trying to tell a story which was all, oh, I was a teenager and I formed a band and I bought all these cool records and then I became a pop star and it was great. And then this time around, I looked at them more honestly <clears throat> and then tried to sort of include all the things you know, that didn't add up, that, that didn't really fit, because most of our lives are made up of things that, they don't just all fit this cool pattern. Um, 
you know, there was a, there was a bit where I talk about going to that big anti-Nazi league demonstration that ended with a big gig in Victoria Park and the clash played. And I went on that. But the next day, I went to a disco in the British Legion Club in Potter's Bar. Um, and I just thought it was important to kind of record those juxtapositions. And, and another thing that, that might not fit necessarily, I think, is what you were reading, some really dark stuff. I, I did do some, some funny reading as a teenager. I think, honestly, I trying to impress a boy, frankly. I met a slightly older boy um, who would talk to me about Camus and Sartre and Zola. So I would dutifully go home and read um, Camus and Sartre. And I think I really did believe that if I walked around with a copy of Nausea under my arm, you know, that that would be um, terrifically sexy <laughs> and attractive. And... The thing I realized when I looked back that I didn't read was I didn't read any women. Uh, there's, there's a real gap in my um, education at that point. Sometimes I read other women writers and they look back and they say how inspired they were when they read Little Women or Jane Eyre or whatever it was. Um, but that didn't really happen for me until I got to university and that, that was the point when I found out what feminism was or got a name for it, at least. I think I kind of knew what it was, but I, I didn't really have the language. Uh, you, you write the book, I like to think I am London, but in fact, like many people, I have suburban bones. And I wondered how the voices of your parents still echo in your head. I mean, they do. I, I, um, both my parents died before this book was finished. My mum, a few years before I even wrote it, my dad died just before I wrote it. Um, and yes, I definitely couldn't have been this honest if I thought they were going to read it. And I, the thing about having suburban bones was I didn't know I did, honestly, until I went back on a visit. And when I started writing, I thought, well, I probably need to go back and visit Brookman's Park, where I haven't been for 20-odd <laughs> years. And in my mind, it was hundreds of miles away because I'd sort of pushed it away. Um, and I got on the train, it's 25 minutes on the train from where I live. You know, I'd made a packed lunch to take with me because in my mind, it's just, it's, it's just over there. It's going to take hours. So I'm sitting on the train eating my sandwiches on the 25-minute train journey. Got to Brookman's Park, got out, walked into the village and just felt completely at home. And that was quite um, revelatory. And that made me realize, okay, I'm not going to write a kind of sneering, condescending book about how awful suburbia is. I'm going to try and write an honest portrayal of the fact that when I was living there as a teenager, I couldn't wait to escape. Um, but actually, now I'm the age my parents were when they were the parents of that teenager. I do understand a lot more what it was that made them move there. And, and in your song, Frost and Fire, you, you write about the difference in ambitions of, of you and your mother and how, how very, very diverse you were. And you went from having this really close relationship as a, as a child to being much, much further apart. Just unpick that a little bit for us. Well, I do think it was a classic generational thing. Um, my mum and I were very close when I was a child. Um, but when I became a teenager and you know, rebelled, essentially, and wanted more for my life. I do think she found that very threatening. And I think it came at a stage in her life when she was feeling very thwarted. Um, she'd been a very bright girl growing up, but left school at 15, worked briefly as a secretary, and then gave up work to bring up three kids. 
And she was good at it, and she enjoyed it, but I do think she felt some frustration. And instead of them being pleased to see me escape that, I think she enacted upon me what had been enacted upon her, which is to try and squash me down a bit. Um, I read Deborah Orr's book, Motherwell, and she writes very similarly about that kind of relationship with her mother and how hard it is to understand sometimes why our mothers weren't happy for us to see us escaping, to see us achieving things they couldn't. And actually, it, it not being until you get a lot older that you begin to understand just how jealous they were and how much that poisoned that relationship. And you're a mother now yourself. Yeah, yes. so, you know, I have, again, I have a completely different insight into it now than I did as a teenager. When I wrote that song, Frost and Fire, I wrote the line, we're as unalike as Frost and Fire. And when I look back now, I think, that's not true. <laughs> you know, it felt like that at the time. Our situations were as unalike as Frost and Fire, and our opportunities were, but as people, you know, I think in many ways we were quite similar. And I think that's often true in, in families, you know, parents and children. You think, well, my dad, the title of this book, Another Planet, comes from my dad saying about me, oh, Tracy, she's from another planet, which he used to say about me. And it's very easy in families to just think, I don't understand these people, and they don't understand me. We're just, we're aliens, we're from different planets, we're as unlike as frost and fire. And really, you're not. It's just that, you know, you, you've been born in different times, you have maybe different opportunities, there can be jealousy involved, resentment, all those things. It's very complicated. Yeah. Uh, Tracy, finally, do you still keep a diary? <laughs> Intermittently. Um, not, as, not at all as, as regularly as I used to. And I do tend now to only keep a diary when I do actually have something to say. <laughs> and I try and be a bit more honest as well. Uh, thank you so much. Tracy's going to be signing copies of the book Thank you. Uh, after the event. Thank you so much. <laughs>